Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, we are so grateful that you're here. I know it's a little it's a little different this morning with uh, the order of things, and but I think whenever someone comes up here to talk about worship, it's just there's something important about being able to immediately put it into practice. Um, that unlike maybe some of the other sermon topics that occasionally come up, uh, it's really actionable immediately when we learn about worship, and then we can come and actually do the stuff that we're learning about. So, so today's question is, why do we worship? Um, this past week we had a leadership meeting and Josh mentioned in that meeting that the goal of these sermons is not to come up here and just say, because the Bible says so, and then walk off stage. And certainly there is a version of this sermon where I could, in a roundabout way, do that. Um, there are approximately 540 different references to worship in Scripture. And if you want, I could read them all. And that could be it. We could fill, if I, if I read really quick, maybe 45 minutes, and then we could just get to the next thing. Um, I, decided, I decided not to do that. Uh, so you're welcome. However, if you would like me to do that, I actually have a slide with my email on it. Um, so if you're interested in that sermon, why don't you get a hold of me, and I'd be happy to record something for you, uh, if that's something you'd like to have. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's the start of my career as an audiobook reader. Anyway, so we're not going to do that today. That's, that's not what this sermon is going to be. Um, okay, yeah, I'm like, don't leave my email up there forever. Uh, that's, it's, it's on the website, but... Uh, all right, so this morning, I'm actually going to start by reading uh, Philippians 2. This is going to be verses 5 through 11. Uh, this is the Kingdom New Testament translation, which is uh, the translation that was done by N.T. Wright. Um, we used it a lot in my household growing up. My dad was always a huge N.T. Wright fan, and I've always been a bit partial to it when uh, I get to preach from the New Testament. Uh, so this is Philippians 2, starting on verse 5. It says, This is how you should think among yourselves. With the mind that you have, because you belong to the Messiah, Jesus, who though in God's form, did not regard his equality with God as something he ought to exploit. Instead, he emptied himself and received the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of humans. And then, having human appearance, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death. Yes, even the death of the cross. And so God has greatly exalted him, and to him in his favor has given the name which is over all names. That now at the name of Jesus, every knee within heaven shall bow, on earth too and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I have always loved this passage of scripture, especially as someone who somewhat regularly leads worship. Uh, don't, don't worry, Melissa, we didn't go really quick. There'll still be worship. I got you. Uh. <laughs> I, can, I can do that because Melissa was probably just at another church service because she's holier than the rest of us. And so this is her second one of the day. Uh, so, sorry about that. Uh, so this passage, this passage of scripture, uh, when I first started doing worship leading, uh, this was always sort of like a helpful roadmap, if that makes sense, to, to how I try to approach it. Um, starting with when we come into this place as a worshiper, 
uh, you empty yourself, um, you humble yourself before God when you come into this place. And then verses 10 through 11 essentially encompass exactly what we're coming here to do when we worship, which is that now at the name of Jesus, every knee within heaven shall bow on earth too and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That we're here to, to glorify him. But I think another important part of this passage is it, it shows a vulnerability that Jesus took on, you know, to, to take on a human form that he didn't have to take, to, to be emptied out, to be humbled in, in a way that uh, was unlike anything he experienced before, even to death. It, it, it's a vulnerability and an intimacy that, that Jesus shows us time and time again that I think is really important for the way that we worship. Because I believe that uh, vulnerability and intimacy, like many other things, begets vulnerability and intimacy. Uh, so I used to work as a hospital chaplain before I had a tiny baby who requires more attention than other things do. Um, and one of the most important things that we talk about when we're, we're at the hospital is th this sort of concept that intimacy and vulnerability beget intimacy and vulnerability. And we learn it straight from Jesus. We're not just making it up in the hospital, but because we're chaplains, we, we talk about the example of Jesus and, and what that means when we step into hospital rooms. And I can honestly say in the, in the hundreds of rooms that I visited, it rings so true that people open up to you when you open up to them first. Uh, I used to come from a house where we didn't do that very much. We weren't very, very vulnerable or, or honest, uh, where I assumed what people wanted was me to just listen to them and hope that they would be intimate and vulnerable. And then I could just sort of meet them there. And I always kind of assumed that was the pastoral thing to do. Um, but as I'm getting older, I'm, I'm seeing that it actually requires us and me particularly to be more vulnerable than them in a lot of cases, which feels strange, especially in hospital rooms, right? When you're going in and, and I'm obviously not the vulnerable one in that room, right? Where hospitals strip you of everything uh, when, it, when it comes to that. Um, and so just finding a place to be able to meet people there uh, is the most important, potentially the most important part of that work in the hospital. And I think that's a great metaphor for worship as well, right? Not, I'm not saying that this place is a hospital. Josh went through all that. We're, we're not going to take any, we're not going to say we're a hospital or, a, you know, anyway. Uh, but instead, uh, what it means is that Jesus was the first one to meet us with vulnerability and intimacy. And so what we do in worship is we come and we meet him in the exact same way. And so that's, that's sort of the overarching point that I would like to make today, if possible. Um, but let me start with, with a claim that I don't think any of the other people speaking are going to make when it comes to this series, um, whether it's preaching or why we're in the vineyard, youth, missions, everything. Uh, small groups. I got you, Matt. Um, I think mine is the most important. Uh, and, not, and not from a, I need it to be the most important for job security sort of way. Uh, but I... I just genuinely believe it. It's why I've spent so much of my life studying it and doing it. Uh, and I think it aligns with, with sort of the vineyard value of that. Um, this is a quote from John Wimber uh, about worship particularly. He says, we in the vineyard have from the very outset of our ministry made worship our highest priority. 
believing that it is God's desire that we become first worshipers of God. So what does that mean to be first worshipers of God? Why is it so important that that be the first thing that we do? Uh, my favorite way to sort of describe that is by using uh, the example of a tower of cups, which uh, I've never been to a wedding or a party where this was there, um, but I assume it's really cool uh, for, for those of you who maybe get invited to more parties than me. Um, who's having all these parties, guys? I've never been invited. Anyway, not the point. Um, so in this example, what we can see, I'm sorry, I'm going to describe it. Uh, just real quick, just follow me for a second. It's when the drink gets poured into the top cup, it overflows and spills down to the next layer. Those layers eventually fill up, spill down to the next one, and so on and so forth. And I believe that that first cup up there, uh, when it comes to our lives in the kingdom of God, is worship. Yeah, should have made that bigger. Yeah, I'd say. Um, I even buffed up that arrow a few times, because at first, anyway, sorry. So, what this, what this metaphor is trying to explain when it comes to worship, I think, is when we come and we worship, we get filled with the presence of God in this place. And then we are touched by him. That, that cup being filled is filled with his spirit. But even more than that, we, we start to learn and to see God's desires for us, for his people. Um, and even just Christ-likeness generally um, are the things that get filled up. And that overflow that comes when we come to worship is the thing that flows into the other cups below it, which um, ends up being sort of the mission of what we're doing in the kingdom, right? And so that overflow lays the groundwork, I think, for the other categories that are getting preached about in this series, right? So, for example, with, uh, you know, the desire to preach, right? Or the desire to do missions locally or uh, internationally, even to lead groups, to want to be a part of youth group, things like that. Those sort of interests or desires that we have, they don't just come out of nowhere, right? No interests or desires or hobbies that we have come out of nowhere. They always are, either we find it ourselves or it's presented to us in some sort of way. And that's how we learn that we like to do certain things, right? You don't just, you're not born all of a sudden liking to do something. You have to discover it at some point. And I believe that worship is the way that we discover the rest of these categories. That at some point, even myself, when I was worshiping one day, there was something inside me that the Lord put in that said, yeah, I could preach. Why not? Why not me? Um, I haven't gotten the, the, like the international missions one yet, um, but you know, there's still time. Uh, but I think that's how it works. I think that's how it works for all these categories, which is why I think worship might be the most important. Because if we're first worshipers, everything else will flow out of that right? That the attitudes and behaviors that comes from being Jesus followers, they come out of this time spent in worship, right? And so this would make worship sort of, not sort of, but very generally the most important thing, I think, in this instance. Uh, I also like the Tower of Cups metaphor because it's, it's kind of like the upside down kingdom, right? Where the foundation's the top and then everything else flows down into it. Uh, anyway, and so as I was working through this question of, of why do we worship, uh, the one sentence that I kept coming back to was because how on earth are we supposed to show people a God that we haven't met? And so that's why we do it, I think. So I'm going to cover three things really quickly before we get back into worship here. I've got three little questions here. 
I'm sorry that I always organize it in threes, guys. I don't know. That's how my brain works. Uh, <laughs> I have gotten feedback that people like it, so that's fine, too. Uh, so whose worship is it anyway? What compels us to worship? And why here, not some random mega church? All right, so very, very first question. Whose worship is it anyway? I like this quote. I, I tried so hard to think of something about... Uh, the questions don't matter and something about the points and I just couldn't guys. I tried. I couldn't, I couldn't think of anything for anyone who enjoys that show. Um, whose worship is it anyway? So I think the reason I picked this quote in particular is because it implies that worship is constantly happening. And the question isn't whether we're worshiping, it's where is it getting directed? Because we are all worshiping something. We're not necessarily worshiping in the, in the, maybe the traditional sense of we're coming and we're singing and we're lifting our hands. Um, but I believe that each one of us, there's a little pedestal at the center of our hearts uh, that, and it directs our actions and our intentions. And ultimately we get to decide what goes up on that pedestal. Um, and I think it's there because we were created with it, with this disposition to worship from the very beginning of humanity. Um, which I think is why there's so many examples of it in scripture of humans in our fallen state, uh, worshiping things, uh, worshiping things that aren't God a lot of the time too. Uh, I just put together a quick list of example of things that we worship, idolatry in scripture. Oh, interesting. I put that there first. Why don't you go to the next one, Pam, and I'll come back. Yeah, there we go. We'll get there. We'll get there. I... I'm not, I'm not attacking any team today. Not, not when mine's playing. I know better than that. Uh, no, but there's so many examples of, of Israel and scripture worshiping things that aren't God. Uh, whether it's they're making their own gods, like we have the golden calf when uh, Moses goes up to the Mount, Mount Sinai and, and they get impatient waiting for him and they're like, well, let's just melt down a bunch of gold and make a, make a calf to worship. Uh, you know, the worship of Baal out throughout scripture. Almost the entire book of Judges is sort of based on this, uh, the, the worship of idols and things that aren't God and the judgment that then comes from that. Um, so those are really literal examples of, of idol worship in scripture. But then I think we have even different idols that are less specific. I think Adam and Eve is one of my favorite examples of that. So we all know the story, right? And I won't tell the story. Um, but I think their story has an idol in it because they have a choice of whether or not to hold on to God's provision and providence and to trust him that that's the one tree you can't go to, but everything else is okay. Um, and it's not gluttony. Gluttony is not the idol here that, Oh, I got to taste that fruit. No, but it's, it's the desire to have the choice to choose for themselves, to have autonomy of what's good and what's not. Um, instead of just trusting the Lord, um, which I think when we really think about it is an idol that we really struggle with today to want to have the choice for ourselves, that we want to be more than just worshipers of God, that we want to be able to make the choice for ourselves about what's right and what's wrong and what I get to do with my life. So those are examples from scripture. We know money, you know, root of all evil. Anyway, um, so you can go back now, fam. But then we have examples of, of mo <laughs> modern idolatry, right? Uh, wait, and I just saw this uh, scrolling through X? Twitter? Whatever it is now? Twixter? Twixter. Uh, whatever we, we're calling it these days. Um, 
maybe in a year this won't age well. No one is watching this in a year. Anyway, um, so when I saw this graphic and I was putting this sermon together, I think it actually encapsulates it perfectly. So these are the 100 most watched TV broadcasts of last year with each little picture signifying exactly what it is. Um, if you guys had to guess, what, do you, what stands out? What, what do you think we've watched the most? It's, it's football. It's, it's football. Uh, it, it's approximately 94 uh, of the top 100 things that we watched for football last year. NFL football. Only, only three of them are college football. Uh, which means some of those were really bad games. You know, there's not 90 good NFL games on during the year. Um, no, but it's, but look at where we're spending our time. I mean, if this doesn't sort of encapsulate a modern idol, I don't know what does. Um, there's another one in there that is, uh, there's a little American flag up there, which is, uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, there's political programming on there too, which is another great example of modern idolatry of the thing that we've put on the pedestal that's directing everything that we do, where we've decided that this political party is going to be the thing that directs all of my actions and intentions. Um, and some people have put football in that place. They're not here. It's okay. They're not here. They might be here. I don't know. Uh, Lord knows I've done it, right? I've wasted entire Sundays after I leave this place where, right, where we come and worship and like, I'm going to live all for Jesus. And then eight hours on the couch watching football and seven hours... And that's it. Um, and so it's really easy to fall into traps like that. Um, all of this, the overarching point here is to say that uh, we are worshiping creatures. We love to worship and love things. That, that's just our natural disposition. It has been since God made us. It will be moving forward. Um, a famous quote from David Foster Wallace, who gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, he said, everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what to worship. And this man, David Foster Wallace, was not even a believer of Jesus at this time when he made this quote. Uh, and actually in this, he argues that uh, perhaps worshiping any sort of deity or, or any faith tradition is the way to go because at least then we have hope uh, in something. And it's a bit dark, but I think actually Timothy Keller's quote in response to David Foster Wallace uh, maybe encapsulates it better where he says, even though you might never call it worship, you can be absolutely sure you are worshiping and you are seeking. And Jesus says, unless you're worshiping me, unless I'm the center of your life, unless you're trying to get your spiritual thirst quenched through me and not through these other things, unless you see that the solution must come inside rather than just pass by outside, then whatever you worship will abandon you in the end. I don't think there's football in heaven, guys. I don't. I don't. I really don't. I think there's going to be a lot of worship. In fact, I think it might be all worship. Uh, and I think that matters because none of these other things will, will get us where we're going. The, the best example I have, I think, for what worship accomplishes in this case, right, where when it comes to this. So how many of you grew up where you had a dad or any parent who liked to fix things and you were at a certain age where you weren't old enough to really help, but you were like, like old enough to where they expected you to help, so you got to hold the flashlight. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
So I grew up with three brothers, but I was the designated flashlight holder. Uh, not because I was the best at it, uh, quite the contrary, uh, but just because I like to spend time with my dad. Uh, so I would hold the flashlight. And so I think when it comes to worship and our predisposition towards it, I think we are all the flashlight, the on flashlight. We're constantly on. We never turn off. We are always casting a light and energy out all the time. And what happens when we worship is that the goal is that with that energy, we're trying to keep that light on whatever it is our dad is fixing, right? Um, which I think is a great metaphor for the work of the kingdom, right? Where, where God is doing his work in this world and trying to repair it. And we have our little energy flashlights that we're trying to put in the right place. Um, and he's telling us to hold it still. But as you guys probably know, nothing makes it harder to hold something still than being told to hold it still. And you go and you think about other things and soon enough your flashlight's at the wall. Um, and so worship, I believe, is sort of the reorienting of the flashlight back into place where it's, it's the gentle nudge from our heavenly father saying, Hey buddy, I, I can't see what I'm doing. And you're just like, Oh, sorry. And, and you bring it right back into place. And so when we come into this place and we worship, it's not necessarily that we're giving off this energy for the first time, but it's just a redirection back up where it's supposed to go. Metaphorical up. I don't know if God's up there. Um, does that make sense? Is that kind of, um, because it's different, right? Because I'm sure when you worked with your dads, they weren't as nice about, Hey, get it back into place. <laughs> they were, you know, it was probably a hit or a dude, seriously, I'm trying to work here. Um, but when we come into this place and we worship, it's a gentle redirection and a reorientation back to where our worship is supposed to go. So whose worship is it anyway? I think it's God's. It isn't always God's because we're going to spend time worshiping other things. There's just, it's just the way that we are and it's the way we're naturally geared. And so that's why it's so important that we are consistent with our worship. And because it, the more time we spend in worship, it makes it easier to reorient ourselves because we're not getting as far away when we come back to worship. That that reorientation is that much easier every single time. So question number two, what compels us to worship? I think the answer to this one uh, comes to us from scripture. Uh, this is a really common answer in the vineyard. Um, this is 1 John 4.19 from the New King James Version. It says, we love him because he first loved us. That unlike anything else in this world that we can worship, we are not the people who initiated the relationship. We are not coming to God in hopes for a first response like we do with any other idol, right? Money can't make us happy unless we go and spend it. Uh, and if you're the kind of person who just enjoys having money in your bank account, and you're like, no, that's it. That's security, different idol. Uh, having power, it's useless unless you have somewhere or someone to exert it on. Um, other religions and belief systems typically require you to behave a certain way or perform certain rituals to then come and initiate a dialogue and ultimately form a relationship. But that's not how our God works. Our God loved you and pursued a relationship with you before you ever stepped foot in a church, before you prayed your first prayer, before you were even born. He has known us all of our days, and he has always wanted the best for us, long before we could come and worship him. Uh, Ephesians 2, this is verses 4 through 10, says that God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, 
He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it for we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Because Jesus is ultimately sort of the opening salvo for this dialogue that we're coming to have with God. That we are responding in worship to the gift of light. Life, excuse me. We are not coming to meet some sort of obligation. We're not coming to perform a certain ritual uh, so that we can find or earn God's acceptance. Uh, there are no strings attached to this invitation to worship. But the incredible thing about worship then is that so much more is available to us when we come to worship. If God never did another thing for us, he never healed us, he never answered our prayers, we would still be irretrievably indebted to him for the gift of his son and his unwavering mercy and grace. Yet, when we come to worship and we praise him for all that he's done, he continues to pour it out for us. He continues to bring his love and his mercy and his grace and he meets with us. He physically meets with us here when we worship. He comes and he responds again through our worship. He speaks to us. He comforts us. He answers prayers and he heals our bodies. We are compelled to worship because it's where we meet with him. And we take our relationship with him then to the next level. We don't have to settle for, for just knowing the surface level details of God and who he is. Hosea 6.3 says, Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of dawn or the coming of rains in early spring. Let us press in to know him and he will surely respond to us. That's the promise that we have when we come to worship. Obviously, we know, we can probably all name a lot of the bigger things about God, right? We know that God is the creator of all life. We know about the life and sacrifice of his son, Jesus, we know about the Trinity. We may not understand it, but we know it. Uh, we know about the covenants that he's made with his people. We know that he is good. And those are all amazing things about God that are so important to knowing who he is. But we're not really plumbing the depths to find out those things, right? Like that's a really cursory reading of scripture. That's a Google search of, of God to figure out those things about him. Uh, you know, those are surface level things. And you don't have to be in a relationship with someone to figure out surface level things about them, right? For example, look at me up here. I've been up here now for uh, 40 minutes talking to you guys. You can probably tell that uh, I can at least kind of play guitar a little bit, or at least fake enough of it. Um, I'm not afraid to sing in front of people, probably. Uh, I probably didn't get enough attention as a kid if I'm still up here. Uh, but you can look at the wedding ring and know that I'm married. Uh, if you saw me uh, kiss my baby when I first, when she first came in here, you know I have a baby, or that I'm the weird baby kisser in the church. <laughs> uh, 
but you don't have to spend extended time with me to know those things about me. You know, you can just see that and, and know that. And, and God works the same way uh, that we have to spend more time with him to learn the more intimate things about him. Because eventually the more time we spend in worship and that we spend with God, we, we start to know things about him and we start to not have to ask certain things, right? Like, like we do with normal people when we enter into relationships. Not everything has to be, well, what would Jesus do? Or if you've encountered a situation and you've spent enough time with Jesus, you know what he would do in a given situation. You know, for example, if I had to go out, if I was going to hang out with Jeremy and we were going to watch a movie at his house, I don't have to ask him what movie he wants to watch. I know he wants to watch either The Meg or The Meg 2 with Jason Statham and The Big Shark. You know, I just know that. I don't have to ask because I've spent enough time with Jeremy to know that, that any movie with a big creature in Jason Statham is, is right up his alley. Um, I have a lot of other friends and I could have picked anyone, but no one else would have gotten me a big picture of a shark. So that's why Jeremy was chosen for that example. And so we come to worship to learn what the big scary shark movies are that God likes, essentially, right? That, sure, yeah, whatever you say, Ethan. Um, sorry. And, and so the, the thing is, as we're talking about this, and I'm talking about this about God, right? I understand that it sounds kind of abstract, right? That, that we say these things, but, but how can we really know that things are God? Um, and I really do believe that in some ways it is a little abstract, right? When we come to worship, we begin to unravel the depths of God's love, that we can see his handiwork in our lives and in other areas. And it, and it literally brings our spirits more into a line with his and it strengthens our connection. And it makes us more Christ-like, you know, sometimes even without us knowing it. And, and I'm aware about how that's hard to see right? That we can't see that until we see the fruit of that work in our lives. Um, but the beauty of worship is that it's not all abstract like that. The abstract is extremely important to being a Jesus follower, but there are things that we can learn about God through worship that are extremely practical too, right? That we literally learn how to hear his voice. That's, that's not like some, you know, you hear a lot of voices in your head and, and different things, but the more that time that we spend in worship, the different things that we hear, the different things that we then respond to, we can see the fruit of that and begin to pick out little things about God that, we're, that we begin to know, hey, that was his voice that said that. Because every time I respond to that voice or that has that quality to it, something happens. God moves when I respond to that. That's extremely practical and it's very real. And I'm sure lots of people can give you examples of that in this room, right? We get to hear answers to prayer and worship too, that we get to know what his voice sounds like. We can listen for it. Um, and then he comes in really practical ways like healing, where he comes and he heals our physical bodies during worship, that it can't have been anything else but God coming and supernaturally touching us as we're lifting our voices to him. And other times, you know, we can hear things about God and we can learn things about the ways that he speaks to us individually. Uh, for example, if you were here a couple weeks back, uh, we stopped worshiping at the end of the set and we stood in silence for a while. And 
at the very end of that, I mentioned that, hey, I thought God wanted to do some healing and, and I pointed to a left hip and someone came up and got prayer. That's not an accident, right? That is me having spent lots of time in worship and knowing and speaking with God and, and knowing that when he wants to heal people and he wants me to be a part of it, that he starts to heat up areas of my body that specifically need healing in that place. And I know that because it's happened a few times, it's a little uncomfortable, and every time it happens, people get healed. I don't know, guys, it's weird. I'm not saying it's not weird, but I think it's God, and I wouldn't know that if I wasn't spending that time in worship, right? I've learned that the presence of God falling, typically for me anyway, comes with when my eyes begin to flutter for whatever reason, which again, really weird, especially the first time it happened. Uh, but I've learned over time that when that happens, the power of the Holy Spirit comes more powerfully in those worship sets and on those mornings. Uh, I've learned what lines of songwriting that I get are from God because they never leave my head and they're typically the parts of songs that people like the best. Um, <laughs> whether it's just a chorus or a line or a bridge or something. Um, does that make sense? We're not just coming here to just sing, right? on Sunday mornings, that we're coming to interact. We're coming to communicate, communicate back and forth. It's, it's not just us singing to God and that's it. And it would be fine if that was it. He's worthy of that if that's it. But he is merciful and grateful to us and he meets with us here and we get to learn about that. Uh, I think uh, one of the most common metaphors for this is uh, coming into the throne room of God when we come to worship. And that we bring everything that we have and we lay it down at his feet and we just wait for his response because he is a good king who wants to give gifts to his people. And so that's what we're doing here. So finally, the last question really quickly here, because I am talking way longer than I thought. Why this church in particular? So sticking with that throne room metaphor for a second here. Here at the Vineyard, our job in the worship ministry is to help guide this entire place uh, to the throne room so that we can come and encounter the living God in this place. That's what we exist to do. Uh, we're not just here because I didn't get enough attention as a kid and because I'm trying to start my CCM career or something, right? We exist to take this group of people, boop, take them to God's throne room, boop, and then we can all visit God together. That's what we're doing up here. Um, so we can come and we can converse. That's why we have the music and the lyrics as a way to help facilitate that. Just as scripture tells us, we sing songs. We sing the words that we either agree with and believe in these songs, or we're kind of like, hey, I don't actually think that, but I'm going to sing it until it's true. Um, because worship and, and the lyrics in our worship songs, they call us to respond, they call us to repent, to change ourselves, and, and ultimately bring us into alignment with, with what God wants us to be. Because we come into this place and we start with the music and the lyrics, but the goal is to go deeper than that. That when those things are ultimately stripped away, we're still left with a connection with God that's gone beyond just simple music. And we don't do that here by creating an atmosphere. We don't really use pads. Uh, we have limited instruments sometimes. Uh, <laughs> And we're not creating any sort of environment meant to manipulate people into thinking you've had an experience with God, um, when in reality, you've probably just had an intense emotional reaction to something. I'm not trying to say that emotions are bad. I, our emotions are God-given, and they have a place in worship. They do. I believe that. But they're not the goal, 
and they're not the main course of what we're doing here. This is why all, not all of our worship service have these big aha moments. Sometimes we just come up here and we play and we sit down and you leave almost thinking, I don't know if God did anything today, right? Because we will only do what we see the Father doing. No more, no less. And that's, that's all we're trying to do here is be faithful in that. That isn't to say that we don't believe in doing things well up here. You know, we practice every week. We, we work hard at this because we know it matters. Um, but we don't make performance an idol unto itself as the thing that could take the pedestal of our hearts. We're, you know, we're not focused on that here. It's all about getting to the throne room and meeting with God. The number one priority of all the decisions we make in our worship ministry revolve around creating a space for all of us to come together and enter into God's presence. What does that look like sometimes? Sometimes it means you don't get the best musicians in the world that way. You just don't. And that's okay. Sometimes we're going to play songs that we hate. Sometimes we're going to play songs that you hate. Uh, and sometimes we're going to stand in silence a lot longer than you'd like us to. But all of those things are intentional about helping us to create worship that is both pleasing to God, but then also a facilitator for us to enter into the throne room as a body. And not all churches are this way. Uh, in a lot of different churches, worship has become its own thing to be worshipped, where perfection and sound have taken over the mission of presence and spirit. Perfection and sound take over the mission of presence and spirit. What you get here when you come to the vineyard to worship is you are going to get sincere people sincerely coming to worship together and seek the kingdom through music. And people who are learning to be intimate and vulnerable with God, just as you are. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. And that's what we're going to try to do this morning. We are going to try to be intimate and vulnerable. And we are going to start with music and lyrics. And then we're going to go deeper. And we're going to meet with God. And my charge to you this morning is that if you are coming into this place and you could not emphatically raise your hand saying, I have had an experience and an encounter with the living God and the Holy Spirit. My charge to you is to come to this place and to ask for it. Scripture tells us that you have not because you ask not. And so, God, this morning, I am asking that you would come and powerfully move amongst your people. That you would show us corporately and individually what it means to experience you. That people would leave this place believing that they had an encounter with you this morning. Whether it's through hearing your voice, whether it's through hearing an answer to prayer, whether it's healing for their bodies. So, Father, we are going to come to you and worship and worship you because you are good, you are great, and you are worthy. And then we are going to wait for your response because you are good and you come every time. So, Holy Spirit, come.